And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here once again with Ken Rosenthal on this Monday. On this episode, we'll dig into the NL MVP race, really down to two at this point. The NL Cy Young Award, which is a bit more wide open, and we'll check in on the playoff picture. Some great races for the wild cards in both leagues and the NL East up for grabs right now as well. Lots of great mailbag questions to come a little bit later on in this episode. Ken, let's start with that NL MVP race, and then there were two. It is really down to Fernando Tatis Jr. versus Bryce Harper. It is possible that both of those players will not see the postseason, but increasingly likely that Harper and the Phillies will actually play further into October, which is something I didn't expect to say just a month ago. I didn't expect to say that either, Derek. It's a shock to me. Now, let me preface this by saying I am a National League MVP voter. I covered the Phillies and Mets last night for Fox. I've got the Padres next week for Fox as well. So I'm seeing both guys in the final weeks of the season. And frankly, we've seen them all season. They've both been great. Harper, though, has the more impressive recent resume, right? The amazing second half, the great September, whereas Tatis, he's been really good in the second half and really good in September. but it's not quite the march that Harper is putting on. So how do you break this down? Well, right now, and when I say right now, I'm talking about statistics entering Sunday because we are taping on Sunday, but they're not going to change very much. Harper is the major league leader in OPS. He's got Tatis by almost 60 points in OPS. He's got him by a lesser margin in OPS plus. That's the metric that accounts for the differences in parks, the difference between the hitter-friendly Citizens Bank Park, and the pitcher-friendly Petco Park. That neutralizes all of that. So from a strictly offensive standpoint, that is something that you have to take into consideration. Now, Tatis has done some amazing things too. He is the home run leader, the slugging percentage leader in the National League, tied for second in stolen bases. Win probability added, that's the metric that allows you to take each individual plate appearance and see where it counts towards the team's winning, that's Tatis's to lose as well. He's the leader in that category. So it's almost splitting hairs. And that's why I say, you know what? It probably comes down to the very end. Who performs better in these final two weeks? Who maybe gets their team to the playoffs? And there's one other factor that I'm going to mention, and it's an important factor to me. I'm not sure it's as important to many voters, especially now when most voters seem hung up on rate stats, And don't really consider this particular aspect that is important to me and its volume. 
volume for a hitter. That's games played, volume for a pitcher, innings pitched. Now, in the case of the National League MVP voting, Harper threw Sunday, 128 games, Tatis 117. It's a difference of 11 games. Not inconsequential, in my opinion. Freddie Freeman, who is a lesser candidate, he's played 146 games, so he's way out there in games played, but again, not as strong a candidate. So if it's that close toward the end, I will put some weight on the games played and the availability that Harper had to his team. And remember, he was hit in the face by a pitch in April. So what he's done is pretty impressive coming back from that and all of the things he has accomplished, not discrediting Tatis. He too has played through a lot, the shoulder issues, the COVID, everything, but he hasn't played as often. So that to me matters. And this is why when it comes to the NL Cy Young race, I am really torn on what's going on. Now, I'm not a voter for this award, but here we look at the candidates and the difference in innings pitched is notable, to say the least. I'll start with Zach Wheeler. Now, he's not going to win, might not even be in the top three, but he's the only guy over 200 innings, 203rd. Then Bueller at 192. Then Scherzer further below 169. And then Corbin Burns at 158. So the difference between Bueller, who has a 2.39 ERA, one of the best in the league, and Scherzer, that's like three starts. If you looking at a start as seven innings. The difference between Bueller and Burns is almost five starts if you're looking at a start as seven innings. It's even more if you look at the start as less than that. That to me is meaningful. Now, I know Burns has done historic things. I know Scherzer has been incredible since joining the Dodgers. But to me, this stuff matters. And I hope that when the voters look at this, they take all of that into consideration because it is not something that should be overlooked. Yeah, there's almost a, a psychology problem here in the sense that when you're playing exceptionally well at the end of the season, we remember that more. That sticks out more in our minds. You could have been great in the first half no and doubt. great in the second, but if someone was even better than you in the second half, it seems like they were better all along, even when the overall resumes are nearly identical. And I would say that's the Burns and Scherzer problem. The underlying numbers for those guys for the season are nearly identical. I think the biggest difference is that Burns actually has a lower home run rate. So that's the skill where Burns would have an edge. But I think Scherzer's performance down the stretch, I mean, it's really helped keep the Dodgers right there with the Giants trying to win the NL West. These teams right now are fascinating to watch, by the way. The Dodgers, the Brewers, every single day, everybody they're throwing out there is must-see TV every time they take the ball. I mean, Brandon Woodruff is basically an afterthought in the Cy Young race, where in a normal year, he'd probably be right up there kind of pushing for at least top three consideration. But you're right. I mean, Zach Wheeler, it's going to be one of the best seasons that doesn't get a lot of actual consideration to win the award, even though he's just as deserving, I think, as the other candidates. Right. And I looked this up last week. I think I put it in my column that was last Monday in The Athletic. Burns's opponent's slugging percentage is the third lowest this century. Wow. It was Pedro, it was Garrett Richards in 2014, believe it or not, and it was Corbin Burns. So that is incredible, right? That's an amazing statistic. But again, when it's 20, 30, 40 innings fewer than another guy like Bueller, I just wonder how you account for that. That's all. That's all I'm saying with this. And I wonder if Bueller and Scherzer now being teammates actually works against Scherzer in terms of how the voting 
ends up shaking out. It should. And I should explain this. The voting in all of these categories, it's two voters from every city. So two Dodgers beat writers, two Giants beat writers, two Milwaukee Brewers beat writers, right down the line. And yes, it's possible that a voter looks at it and says, well, this guy's the better Dodger, or this guy was with the Dodgers all season in the case of Bueller. But for the most part, voters today, Derek, just kind of look at the stats and go from there. And I don't know that they worry about guys on the same team splitting the vote. That's more of a problem, I would think, in the MVP voting. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense based on the way the votes are divvied up. Uh, one last thought on Bryce Harper. He's got a 218 WRC plus in the second half. 18 home runs in 59 games. He's hitting 355, 486, 761 since the All-Star break. And Bryce Harper didn't make the NL All-Star team this year. It'd be pretty weird to have an MVP who did not play in the All-Star game or didn't even make the roster. I'm sure it's happened before, right? But you're right. And again, the point you made earlier about how we're affected by recency bias in all of these awards. That is very valid. And games in September are no more meaningful than games in April, right? They all count the same. But at the same time, when you're Harper and you're leading a very flawed team to a potential postseason berth, that does matter. And the same goes for Tatis. So another week, another exciting shift in the playoff picture. We should take a look at where, what we're looking at here now in the AL and NL wildcard races. The Yankees sliding a little bit on the AL side, the Cardinals on the rise. What's really caught your eye here over the past week? The Cardinals for sure. And I wrote about Lester and Hap last week, and a lot of fans said, yeah, yeah, they're not that good, whatever. Okay. <laughs> they might not be that good, but they've helped. And the Cardinals... For whatever reason, they're one of these teams, and I love when fans refer to the devil magic of the Cardinals, but they do have this certain quality about them, even in down years, where they find a way, they figure it out, and then all of a sudden, look, they're dangerous. They're dangerous right now. And if they are the second wildcard team, and you've got Wainwright throwing against Scherzer in the wildcard game, I would give the Cardinals at least a puncher's chance. It's not like that's an impossible situation for them. So... Just their whole thing is really impressive. The way they go about it, the fundamental style. I was, again, with the Mets and Phillies over the weekend and talking to several Mets who had just played the Cardinals. They were raving about what St. Louis is able to do. And Tyler O'Neill is a star now. There's no question about that. And the Wainwright-Molina relationship, Kevin Pillar said at one point during his at-bat, they're actually talking to each other. He goes, they're, they're just they're talking one to the other, pitcher to catcher, not even exchanging signs. They're just having a conversation. And he's sitting there, and there's nothing he can do about it because if Wainwright makes his pitch, it's not going to matter anyway. So it's just the kind of team that, while it hasn't played well for much of the year and was kind of a frustrating team to watch, they are the best defensive team in baseball by both defensive run saves and outs above average. That counts for something. They run the bases pretty well. They got the guys on the corners. They're big time stars. And for whatever reason, at the right time, they have put it together. Lester and Hap were just stop gaps, right? They were supposed to kind of hold it down until they got some of their injured pitchers back, protect some of their younger pitchers from having to be exposed. And yet they've played pretty significant roles. So I'm really impressed by what they've done. And Obviously, Wainwright, he's not going to be a top three Cy Young guy either, but he's up around 190 innings, and that's quite an accomplishment for someone 
40 years old. The American League, <laughs> it's fascinating in its own way. The Blue Jays at this moment look like they're going to be one of the teams. They're just playing too well. And the Yankees have all these pitching problems still, even with the possibility of Severino coming back in a limited capacity and Luizaga. Cole got beat on Sunday. Not good. They need to win his games. And it just seems, and this can turn quickly. We've seen this thing turn a hundred times in both leagues. That the Red Sox, they've endured the worst of their situation with the COVID positive tests and players that they've lost to the injured list who were close contacts. And it seems to me, if you have to look at it right now, they're going to get there. So if it's the Blue Jays and Red Sox, okay. Could the Yankees somehow find a way to get back? Yes, but we've been talking about their flaws all season. And they're not going away. And I just don't see them mounting this great push in the final week. But of course, we would have all said that before the 13-game winning streak too. Yeah, it's all still close enough, absolutely up for grabs here over absolutely. the final two weeks. And I think the other story here, Bridgerly and I talked about this a bit on the episode for Friday, but the San Diego Padres, their slide. I, I think if you're just a general baseball fan, you're disappointed with what has happened with their season. Obviously, internally, they're very disappointed because they had World Series aspirations, and now they're they're sliding out of the playoff picture. Troubleshooting what's wrong with that team. I mean, right now they have Jake Arrieta and Vince Velasquez making starts, two guys who were cast off yes. from other rotations. It's amazing to me as the team that traded for pitching and then traded for more pitching and then traded for more pitching yet that they still are resorting to guys like that in critical September starts. Hey, Derek, you're absolutely right. And that is the pain of their season, that for all the work that they did, the good work that it appeared would result in a better team than even last year when they were really good. It just kind of went south on them because of these pitching injuries. Now, they have a history of this with injuries and the pitching staff, and no team is going to sympathize with the Padres because every team has had its own issues. The Braves lost Ronald Acuna Jr., for heaven's sakes. And now he's not a pitcher, but you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. So there's no sympathy in this league. There's no crying in baseball. But yes, the Padres have had a lot of issues. And there are other things going on with that team. The internal dynamics that are not great. We wrote a story about that yesterday, Sunday. And it's going to be a quite an interesting offseason for this club, to say the least. I still feel like their window is open, so to speak, in 2022 and 2023, but more tinkering appears to be on the horizon for A.J. Preller and company in San Diego. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing 
ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Let's go to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. Lots of great questions. Two ways to reach the show. Of course, you can call us 646-543-7072, or you can drop us an email, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And our first question from this week comes from Daniel on voicemail. Hi, Ken. This is Daniel, and I'm, and I'm in Boston. Going to this year, there was a lot of buzz surrounding the impact of the jump from a 60-game season to a full 162 games on pitcher fatigue and arm injuries. Has there been an uptick in arm injuries or overall ineffectiveness from pitchers as the year has gone on? And if so, has this been across all pitchers, or is it more severe in starters or bullpen arms? Thanks. Bye. Daniel, these are great questions, and unfortunately, I don't have the answers. Now, we definitely saw early in the season there were a number of things going on injury-wise. I don't have any recent data on that, not for starters, not for relievers, but certainly we've seen teams go to great lengths to protect pitchers. We've definitely seen some injuries across the league. There's no doubt about that. And whether it's because of the uptick from 60 to 162 or whether it's normal wear and tear, that is what is hard to say. And it's hard to separate the variables. And the same goes actually even in a greater sense with the ineffectiveness question. Are pitchers more ineffective because of what has happened? Well, keep in mind something dramatic happened in the middle of this season the enforcement of the sticky stuff. That seemed to affect overall pitching performance and offense. It seemed to have the effect that baseball desired, which was to boost offense and reduce the dominance of the pitchers. So that's a factor. And then with the injuries, going back to that, COVID and that aspect of the injured list is another thing that is part of this equation and not so easy to measure in the aggregate. So by the end of the year, I'm sure there are journalists who will put out some data about this stuff. The guys at Prospectus and women do a really good job with that, generally speaking. But I don't have it right now. My suspicion is it's up, but how much of that can be attributed to the increase in number of games, the difference in schedules, all of that, that is what is so hard to say. And I think we can say one thing without much doubt. And that is keeping pitchers healthy is a huge problem in this sport. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually been surprised at the workloads of some starting pitchers. Seeing Zach Wheeler already over 200 innings to me is a pleasant surprise. Seeing guys not really being shut down as much as we thought in September due to workload concerns. To me, that's a good sign. I'm curious to see what happens in 2022 with the gap in the workloads from 
2020 to 2021, will we see more sure. injuries next season for guys that maybe threw 100 or so more innings than they did a year ago? I think that's one lingering concern that teams are going to have to deal with as well. But a great question from Daniel and certainly uh, more information to come on that front. Let's go to a voicemail here from Josh. Hi, Ken. My name is Josh. I'm calling from Glacier National Park. So I hope you can hear me. I was just listening to the episode this past week. And my question is in regards to the Hall of Fame discussion that you're having with Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and Pete Rose. Uh, my question is related to the steroid era and the Hall of Fame. I think that the Hall of Fame primary goal and job is to tell the story of baseball and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on how you can tell the story of baseball without including the steroid era and as a byproduct of that including the uh, steroid era's greatest players and icons uh, I feel like there's a way that you can tell that story that is informative of what those players uh, in regards to those players' choices, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. So thanks so much. Really enjoy the show. Looking forward to uh, hearing what you have to say. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, Josh, thank you very much, and we heard you just fine from Glacier National Park. That's a first, Derek, hearing from Glacier National Park. Great flex. Great flex. <laughs> As to your question, you're absolutely right. The Hall of Fame, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, is a museum. And part of its mission is to tell the story, the history of the sport. Now, the hall does do that. There is an actual exhibit, or I guess a case, where the steroid era is acknowledged. There are artifacts in that exhibit acknowledging the steroid era, explaining what happened. There's even a quote from Faye Vincent, former commissioner, that says, I think the public will put its own asterisk on all the records, even if baseball doesn't. So the whole situation is acknowledged. And there's stuff on Ryan Braun in there, Sosa, others. It's it's pretty comprehensive, though small. Now, from that perspective, then, the Hall is doing its job and recording that era of history. When it comes to electing Hall of Famers, that's a different story. And I have a friend who once was a baseball writer and no longer is, who really used to put it well. He would say the election to the Hall of Fame is not a right, it's a privilege. And the voters, obviously, have their say in who gets in, and they don't have to automatically elect steroid-era players, guys who they believe were users or proven to be users, alleged users, however you want to frame it, because it's a museum honoring history. One thing is not the same as the other. So you can acknowledge the history through the exhibit while still voting against these players because you don't believe they are worthy of the Hall of Fame. You don't believe they meet the criteria, the character and integrity clause, which of course is subjective. Now, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I won't go too deeply into it. I vote for these guys now for the most part, Bonds, Clemens, and certain others, but I'm not happy about it. I vote for them because I think others who have used are already in, and I don't know where we draw the line in excluding some and including others. That's my particular 360-degree, 30,000-foot view of it. 
There are flaws even in that thinking. There are exceptions that I don't acknowledge. I, I get it. We don't have to go through it all. But again, I just want to draw the distinction between telling that story of the game's history, which the Hall does, and requiring players to be elected because they were part of that story. That's not the way it goes. Yeah, I think there is a little bit of a misconception as to what is actually included in the Hall of Fame. It's much larger than people realize. I have not been there, but everybody who has been has ever told me, spend two days there because you're going to need at least two days to see everything that they have in Cooperstown. Right. It's not just the honorees. It's not just where the inductees are enshrined. The gallery, that's what it's called, the gallery. That is one aspect of the Hall, and that's where the players are honored and the other Hall of Famers are honored. But that's not the entire museum by any stretch. We had a two-part question from Dan in Ohio. The first part was actually right in line with that last call, so we're not going to rehash that. But the second part of Dan's question was, should the hall broaden what it looks at in voting? I love and understand the exclusivity of the hall, but I do think it can at times be a disservice to baseball history. One thing I would love to have looked at more closely is overall impact on the game globally and in pop culture. Take David Ortiz, for example, who clearly has the statistics to be Cooperstown bound, yet it is my opinion that his status as a global icon of baseball should make him a unanimous selection, or take a guy with more fringy numbers like Evan Longoria, who may not have the statistics to get there when it's all said and done, yet given his impact on the game's popularity and growth among my generation, perhaps he does deserve more consideration. Of course, These things are undeniably hard to quantify, but I felt this way for a while and was curious for your thoughts on the idea. Thanks again. Love the show. Dan Z in Ohio. Dan, fair points. No question. And let me just state the Hall's criteria, what we're instructed to vote on. A player's record, playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the teams on which he played. So all of the things you mentioned whether you want to view it from a pop culture lens or just a character lens. They are things we are supposed to consider. And in certain cases, they are considered. Certainly with the guys not making the haul because of steroid use, it's because of the integrity character thing. With Bonds and Clements, there's no other reason. Their numbers are perfectly, (laughs) incredibly hall-worthy. So my general rule is when a player is close and he has what I perceive to be, and I can only say it's perception because I don't know for sure, that integrity, character, sportsmanship thing, then I will maybe go the extra mile and say, okay, I'll vote for that player. If he is in the same situation, but those things are negatives, I generally don't hold it against them. I think those things should be viewed as a positive. It's just my personal thing. Every Hall voter, every man and woman who votes has their own set of standards. So what you mentioned about Ortiz, that will come into play. His standing in the game and what he meant to the sport, a lot of people will take that into consideration. Not all. A lot will. And a lot will say, well, he might have been a user and I'm not voting for him. There are going to be all kinds of opinions. More than 400 Hall voters, you're going to get a lot of different views. But generally speaking, those things are considered In a player like Longoria's case, just because you used him as an example, he is not at a level, in my opinion, where all of those qualities that you mentioned raise him to Hall of Famer. There are certain guys that are close. Yes, they get an extra boost, but not Longoria. He's not He's not close enough, in my opinion. Very good player. No question. Really good player, but not quite a Hall of Famer. 
Yeah, I would say Evan Longoria is kind of in the, the same tier as Ryan Braun, who recently announced his retirement, where Braun's resume would fall just short. Of course, his PED situation even maybe a little worse because of the subsequent you know attempt to, to lie about it and everything that came after that. But I would say that's Hall of Very Good. Those are guys who are going to have their numbers retired by the franchises. Well, in Braun's case, where he spent his entire career, in Longoria's case, I would say probably Tampa Bay, where he spent most of his career, right? The guys that are one notch below. doesn't mean they're bad players. just means they're not no, quite not Hall of Famers. That's the whole thing. And the one thing I hate about these discussions, Derek, is when we start comparing players, we're comparing the very best. So when we say a guy is not a Hall of Famer, he's still a great player. He just might not meet a personal measure of Hall of Fame worthiness for that particular voter. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job Job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Thanks a lot for that question, Dan. Our next questions come from Steve. He's got two questions for us, pretty short ones. Uh, the first one is, what cities are favorites to land an expansion franchise? This is a good question, and I'm not sure the answer here either. We've heard the names or the cities, Las Vegas, Portland, Charlotte, Nashville, probably those most often. Am I missing anybody, Derek? Those are the big ones that you hear the most. Um, I think people want a team to go back to Montreal, but sure, seems a little more far-fetched than the big three. And also, Montreal is kind of in the mix here because of the Tampa Bay plan to play half the season in Tampa Bay in a new ballpark, half the season in Montreal in the new ballpark. Now, let's go back a step with expansion. Before MLB will even entertain it, they want Tampa Bay and Oakland to be resolved. They want those ballpark situations figured out one way or the other, whether Oakland stays in Oakland or leaves for Las Vegas, whether Tampa Bay can complete this particular arrangement with Montreal and make it go forward or not. Baseball's view is we're not going forward until we get those resolved. And Rob Manfred, the commissioner, has said recently also that the COVID pandemic 
kind of set everything back to. So we're a little further away than maybe we were, I don't know, three years ago. But the cities I mentioned, Las Vegas, Portland, Charlotte, Nashville, certainly they're all in the mix. Nashville had Dave Dombrowski for a while before he went back to the Phillies. All of these cities have their merits. I'm sure there are reasons that may not be good to expand to, but we're going to get to 32 eventually. And when we get to 32, we're going to have eight four-team divisions, probably some type of expanded playoffs, probably a geographic realignment, and the sport's going to look from that perspective quite a bit different. Yeah, I would say of those options, there's nothing against any of those three cities. Nashville has become one of my favorite places to visit. they got a great new AAA ballpark there. A lot of great baseball history in that city, too. It would make a lot of sense from just a pure geography standpoint. I'd love to see Nashville get a team in the next few years. The second part of Steve's question, though, with all the cord cutting going on and online streaming becoming the present rather than the future, is there any chance Major League Baseball ends the blackout rules? Steve? I should have a better answer to this question than the one I'm about to give you <laughs> because I'm someone who actually works in television, right? I have jobs in television, but this stuff is incredibly confusing. And we all want the blackout rules to change because there are too many people in too many different places unable to watch their favorite teams. And it's a story that Evan Drellick recently wrote for The Athletic that is quite complex and he attacked it really well and he explained it. And I'll explain why it's complex without getting too much into the details on why the blackout rules exist, because it's just incredibly complicated, as I said, and it's also varying from city to city, why different circumstances are one way in one place and not in another. So basically, when you have a television situation, you have a club, right? Let's say the New York Yankees. They sell their rights to a regional sports network. Actually, the Yankees are a bad example since they own their network. Let's talk about the Tampa Bay Rays. Sell their rights to a regional sports network. Some of these teams own part of the RSN, as I just mentioned with the Yankees. The RSN, the regional sports network, then sells the right to carry those games, the carriage rights, to a TV provider. Could be satellite, could be cable. And that's how the system works. Now, cord cutting is a real thing. People going away from such providers and looking for things on their own, a la carte. And it's dramatically affected how the product is consumed. Baseball, I truly believe, wants its product to be viewed by as many people as possible. Why wouldn't the sport want that? But it's complicated by all these different arrangements between clubs and RSNs and carriers and all these different things that are going on. And for whatever reason... They don't have total control over the situation, and they're unable to dictate just how this goes down. So in the years to come, might all this change? I would expect it would change. And in Evan's story, he quotes an expert as saying, if Kanye West is playing the pyramids in Egypt, and it's on television, I should have the right to buy that and watch it. And his point was, if I'm sitting in Iowa, and the Cubs are playing the Cincinnati Reds, and they're blacked out because Iowa is in particularly bad straits with the blackout situation. They're involved with many teams. So mm -hmm. they should have the right. A person in Iowa should have the right to see the Cubs play. It's ridiculous if they pay. Hopefully we get to that point. I think everyone involved wants to get to that point. It's just complicated. And I, I hope I'm not given too 
basic an answer here, but I, I don't know that I can explain it any better. I don't know that I'm knowledgeable enough to explain it any better. I guess the way I always think about it, Ken, it's not impossible because I think baseball has a pretty clear interest to get the product in front of as many people as possible. So while yeah. it, it's taken longer than we all would have hoped, if you've been in a spot where you've been blacked out from watching teams you want to see, I think there is some sort of resolution on the horizon, even though it might be a, a complicated series of steps to actually make it happen. A couple more questions to get to before we go. This one comes from Chris. What is your biggest baseball pet peeve. Mine is when announcers say how good a pitch was based on the outcome. For example, a pitcher could throw a curveball right down the middle if the batter isn't looking for it and it buckled the batter's knees. They will say it was a nasty pitch. The pitcher can throw the exact same pitch and if the batter is looking for it and hits a home run, they'll say that he hung that very same pitch. Chris, that's a great one. And you're absolutely right. Too often we judge on outcomes and not process. And sometimes a pitcher, a team can follow the right process and get a bad outcome. Sometimes they follow the wrong process and get a good outcome, and we're judging them accordingly, but not necessarily fairly. If you ask me my biggest pet peeve as a baseball writer, it's that the game is so humbling for people in the sport or outside the sport to think they know everything or to think in absolute terms about any particular situation. That's the most dangerous thing you can do. And it really bugs me that everyone thinks they know everything about everything. And that's partly a product of the social media era we live in when everybody's got an opinion and thinks they're entitled to an opinion. But in many cases, we don't know. In many cases, the sport cannot be explained. It baffles even the people who are involved in it. So... When you sit there and you're judging, and we all judge. Listen, it's my job to judge. We all do it. But you have to have that in the back of your mind. That there has to be a humility with following the sport, with understanding the sport, with projecting the sport. And that humility comes from experience with it. If you've been involved in the sport, if you follow the sport, you know you don't know everything. You know you're screaming sometimes about things you don't know about. So maybe you should stop screaming. And take a step back. And I'm not saying, again, we shouldn't have debates and arguments. No, that's the lifeblood of the sport. But in general, know-it-all mentalities in any walk of life I find rather distasteful. How's that? I think that's a great answer. I think uh, I'll share one of mine. I think one of the things that frustrates me when I'm watching a game is we see Occasionally, we get great interviews with either members of the front office or even sometimes ownership. I watch a ton of Brewers games, so Mark Antanasio will periodically do an interview with the Brewers TV crew. I love that. I want to see more of that. My pet peeve is that we don't see enough. We don't hear enough from the decision makers and the powers that be around the game within the game. There's so much time during a broadcast where you can bring in guests like that. I would love to see even more of that than we're currently getting pretty much across the board one last question for this week, Ken. This one comes from Carm in Denver. With all the talk about Shohei Otani versus Vlad Jr. for the AL MVP, where is the love for Salvador Perez? I'm pretty sure he's going to finish third in the voting, but do you think he will at least garner one first place vote? Carm, it's a great point. I don't know that Sal Perez is going to finish third. Marcus Semyon might finish third. Middle infielder. I know Sal's a catcher, but he's had an amazing year too. It's going to be in the hands of the voters. That said, Salvador Perez's season is one of the more remarkable seasons I can recall witnessing. This guy started 112 games at catcher. 
He's played in 148 games overall. 148. That includes his games to DH and his games as a backup catcher or a guy who enters the game after the start. But it's an incredible number. And through it, he is hit among the highest home run totals by a player whose primary job is catcher in baseball history. And beyond all that, he is exactly the player the Royals signed him to be, which is an example for their younger guys, a beacon for their community, a leader in their clubhouse, everything you want out of a player. So is he a legit MVP candidate? You bet he is. We happen to have a guy who is doing things that we've never seen before, Otani, a guy who might win the Triple Crown, Guerrero Jr., and some other great candidates as well. But Salvador Perez, in maybe another year, and maybe if the Royals were a better club, he'd be getting even more attention for what he has done, and he deserves it all, all the positives he deserves. Great year. Yeah, we had that question earlier that mentioned uh, Evan Longoria and, and the impact he had on the game's popularity and, and growth for people who are probably in their their 30s. I would say if you're a Royals fan, Salvador Perez is maybe the first player you think of when you think of that team. I mean, if you grew up kind of post-George Brett, like he is a franchise icon in the season he's put together, probably overshadowed by Otani and Guerrero forever and in the history books. It's been a great one from him, one that I don't think anybody saw coming. I mean, he could get really hot and actually hit 50 home runs this year. It's not totally out of the question, which is just amazing to think about that. Thanks for a great batch of questions again this week. Again, two ways to reach the show. We'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 646-543-7072, or you can email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. We have to go. Before we go, I'd like to say if you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to rate and review the show, we really appreciate all the five-star reviews. And if you're signing up for a subscription to The Athletic for the very first time, you can get 50% off at theathletic.com slash baseball show. For Ken Rosenthal, I'm Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Tuesday with Starkville. Have a great day.